many people on both sides had already mentally redefined marriage. They hadn't taken out the gender requirement, but they had already mentally redefined marriage as having nothing to do with procreation. You know, it has nothing to do with kids, um, and, and it has nothing to do with permanence, and it doesn't really have anything to do with the differences between men and women. We really have to assert, again, the differences between men and women, the needs of children for a permanent relationship with both of their biological parents, right, and for the primacy of the connection between sex and babies, that, that socially declaring that sex and babies are to be disconnected, you know, this is a big thing. You know, this was sold to us like it was no big deal. It was a huge deal, you know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Girl Boss Interrupted. I'm Helen Roy. This episode is a special one. In it, I'll be chatting with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, an economist, writer, founder of the Ruth Institute, and author of the book The Sexual State. Published by Tan Books, I recently read and was impressed by Dr. Morse's book because of the way she elaborated on the concept of the administrative state as a facilitator specifically of antisocial sexual depravity and the ways that these enforcement mechanisms make people miserable. If you haven't before heard of the administrative state, you might consider looking into the work of Ronald J. Pastrito, which I will link in the description. As always, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and shoot me an email with suggestions. I love connecting with y'all. Enjoy the episode, and we will chat again in two weeks. God bless. Okay, so uh, Dr. Jennifer Morse, welcome to Girl Boss Interrupted. Thank you for having me, Helen. I'm excited. I am so excited. Um, as I as I mentioned over email, I'm I loved your book, and I think it's a really important uh, rubric for 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 people who are dissatisfied with the state of things and you know want want to engage on a meaningful level in turning the tides. So I want to start by asking you to share a bit of your personal story and um, how how you kind of arrived at these conclusions personally? Well, um, I first have to say I'm a little bit older than you, so my stories may be longer than you're used to on these <laughs> programs. But but, um, but I, when, when I was a little girl, it was possible to say, I want to grow up to be a mommy. And by the time I was in college, it was no longer possible to say that. Okay, so that just, you know, situates you, you know, historically. Um, I was born in 1953. And uh, went to college. Uh, I was a full participant in the early days of the sexual revolution. Um, thought it was great. Everybody thought it was great. It was going to be fun, you know. Um, and I got married. And I was married and divorced by the time I was 24. Married, divorced, and had had an abortion by the time I was 24. Um, I was on my way to getting a doctorate in economics. <clears throat> I was never um, attracted to feminism as it's sort of classically understood. Excuse me. <clears throat> but I was very attracted to careerism. And okay, and so the part of feminism that said, you go girl, you need a career, you need education, that was very appealing to me for a variety of reasons. And my doctorate's in economics, which is a male dominated field. I was always involved in free market economics, so I was never tempted to, you know, sort of stray off into the left, right? Um, but for me, what happened was uh, infertility. So in, in my second marriage, uh, when I was in my mid-30s, um, I was on the verge of getting tenure at George Mason University, and I declared it was time for us to start a family, you know. And I had it all planned out, Helen. I was going to get pregnant in May, and then uh, I was going to have the baby in May and take care of the baby during the summer, and I was going to go right back to work in, in the fall and never miss a day of work, because that's what all of my female colleagues had done. Amongst them, they had probably had 10 children, and none of them had ever missed a day of work, and that was considered like, you know, the right thing to do. Wow. Well, imagine my, imagine my surprise when the baby mm. did not arrive during the month that I had set aside for it, you know. And, and so that um, infertility experience was the beginning of my reversion to the Catholic faith, which is, was the faith of my childhood. I grew up in kind of pre-Vatican II um, Catholicism. And... Wow. Um, 
<clears throat> and so infertility brought me back to to see that I couldn't make everything work by trying harder and following all these new rules that we have, you know, that I know you guys talk about in your show a lot, you know, the new script and everything. You know, that, that script was like, it's not working whatsoever, you know. Yeah. And so we resolved our infertility. I came back to the church. I had my first marriage and all, you know, went to confession after 12 years, you know, sobbing and like, you know, in the first <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, and, and, I, I, and I just want to say, I just want to say to anyone listening, you know, if you're a lapsed Catholic, it only takes one good confession and you can be back, you know, so I'm just going to put that out there. Um, but we resolved our infertility by adopting a little boy from a Romanian orphanage in 1991. And when he arrived, he was two and a half years old. And then, um, and then six months later, I gave birth to a baby girl. So we had two months within two children within six months time, and they were three years apart in chronological age. And so if you can get the timing there, 1991, this was very soon after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And a lot of people were, oh, let's adopt these little babies. It's going to be so great. You know, so we were kind of in the first batch of people who adopted Eastern European orphans. We didn't really know what we were getting into. You know, I mean, no one, you know, a few specialists could predict that what we were getting into but you know everybody was excited and it, it looked like a great idea and so on and so forth and it turned out that our boy had a lot of challenges and all of his peers you could say because we knew a bunch of people who had done this at the same time all these kids had the same problems helen you know the from lack of socialization inability to speak inability to even understand my, my boy didn't even know his own name at the age of two and a half, oh. if you can imagine. Oh, I know, if you can't even imagine that. So, you know, all my plans of putting the kids into daycare and going right back to work, you know, that just, that had to go, you know. It, it took me a while to figure out that it had to go. Um, and there were some interesting steps along the way, but, you know, it just became clear that that wasn't gonna work. So um, in 1996, um, my husband said, we're getting out of here. We got to get out of this Beltway thing. <laughs> and uh, he said, come to Silicon Valley. My husband's an engineer. He's a nuts and bolts kind of guy, you know, and there's no engineering yeah. in D.C., you know, right. 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 That's, all, that's all social engineering, you know. Um, <laughs> so um, so off we went to California and I was relieved, honestly, to to get to to say goodbye to my academic life because I was trying to do a full-time job in part-time hours with a seriously disturbed child and a, and an infant, you know, and it was, it was too much, you know? Yeah. Um, so I never looked back on that, on that score. Um, but as we were raising these two kids, it just became very, very clear that kids need their parents. Okay. And I had enough analytic training to understand what I was seeing. Of course, I knew nothing about child development. You understand? Hmm. Nothing. <laughs> we knew nothing. We were so unprepared, you know? But but I, but I had enough analytic training to say, hey, if, if it's really true that kids need their mommies and they need to attach to their mommies, if that's really true, and mommies can't really do it all alone, they really need daddy to help and mm -hmm. keep the family house together and the money coming in and mom not having to race off and be right. hysterical when the daycare provider doesn't show and you know all that if that's really what we what kids need and that seems to be hardwired i don't think that's socially constructed that seems to be a real thing what are we doing what you know what are we doing as a culture yeah. so that set of questions brought me where I am today, you know, and so mm -hmm. I could go into detail on all of the, you know, the, the various sub branches of that question. Right. But, right. but the, the core, the core mission of my life, I guess, is, is to say kids need their parents and therefore adults have to behave. And there are certain yeah. constraints that this puts on adult behavior and nobody's picking on you or being mean to you. This is just hardwired into the universe. We cannot socially deconstruct this. Yeah. And that's that's my mission. You know, that's what we do at the Ruth Institute. That's what I write about. That's what I talk about. That's what gets me up in the morning, you know, is to deal yeah. with that. Wow. What a powerful testimony that is. I can relate to it on several different levels, believe it or not. Yeah. I'm also a revert. And, oh. um, 
Yes, and also escapes DC because my um, brainy husband <laughs> was fed up with the social engineering aspect of What's this. That? <laughs> because my like my my uh, my uh, right-brained husband is that right Le- or left-brained? Uh, just you know, math kind of practical You're husband analytic. was like yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Analytical husband was was sort of fed up with the uh, with the social engineering aspect of that town. So. <laughs> Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, and as you know, the purpose of this podcast is to deconstruct, um, some of the narratives that, that you've just, you've just shared were an influence on your life and your trajectory. Um, oftentimes it's, it's difficult to articulate like what precisely those narratives are because they're metaphysical, they're disembodied, they're almost difficult to point to. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times people find themselves in life wondering, you know, why did I believe what I believed? Because sometimes people didn't even tell them explicitly, this is, you know, didn't even tell them explicitly that this is good or whatever. They would just sort of find themselves there. So in your book, The Sexual State, which I have right here, uh, my toddler, as you can see, tore the cover off and drew on it with chalk. But yeah, she's got she's got the the real cover over there. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So in your book, the that's sexual a good state, sign, Helen. Helen. Helen yeah. That's a good sign that your book has been destroyed by a toddler. Yes. Okay, yes. That's for nice sure. That's wonderful. Sure. I love it. I love. It. I appreciate that. I will take that as an endorsement of my book. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> she was reading it to me. So <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so you you do a really awesome job of articulating the real mechanisms, like the actual functionaries, the actual systems that you can point to and the yeah. actual rules um, that force people to sort of abide by the narrative. So I think you do this amazing job of of bringing that sort of disembodied expectation to light in a particular way. So my first question for you is, how did you come up with this framing of the situation? Oh, how did I come up with it? Well, you know, you know, have you ever had somebody ask you, how long did it take you to write this book? And the answer is, maybe 20 years. Yeah, forever. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> um, so... It's interesting that you that you asked how did I come up with the framing because because you figure one part out and then you talk about it for five years and then you figure out what it was really all about and then you go to the next phase and you figure it out and you write about it and then you talk about it for five years and figure out what it's all about. Um, in my case, the particular three-part framing that's in here, and I assume we'll talk about that at some point, but the three-part structure... I came up with that, Helen, in the process of trying to defend man-woman marriage. Mm. So I was very active in the campaign to def- to define marriage as the union of one man and one woman. I got involved in Proposition 8 in 2008 in California because I was in San Diego when all of that went down. Um, and I felt I couldn't sit it out. I felt like I couldn't sit on the sidelines and say, I don't want to get involved because I could see that if you redefined marriage to remove the gender requirement so that marriage is the same thing for two men, two women, a man and a woman, you were going to redefine parenthood, right? You're going to end up, because those three groups can't be this, you can't make them equal with respect Mm. to parenthood. So you're going to end up redefining parenthood. And I couldn't figure out any way that that was going to end up being good for kids Mm. and their relationships, their permanent relationships with their parents. I couldn't, you know, and I'm more convinced of that than ever. But the point is, I was out on a regular basis debating this topic. Uh, I did a lot of Federalist Society debates on law school campuses. I did a lot of public debates in various contexts, um, a lot of radio, you know, that all that kind of thing. I was very involved in it. So I heard the arguments that were coming back, and I, and I heard the arguments from both sides. And I really felt all along that we weren't getting to the heart of the matter, that no one really wanted to talk about what I wanted to talk about, which was, if you redefine marriage, what's that going to do to parenthood? You know, everything took place at this very superficial level, including on our side. You know, a lot of the people that I worked with, I was very frustrated with them, you know, that all they wanted to talk about was religious liberty or something, you know. Um, and, um, and so it finally, after 
I don't know, several years of doing this, it became clear to me that the reason I wasn't getting anywhere is that many people on both sides had already mentally redefined marriage. They hadn't taken out the gender requirement, but they had already mentally redefined marriage as having nothing to do with procreation. You know, it has nothing to do with kids um, and, and it has nothing to do with permanence. And it doesn't really have anything to do with the differences between men and women. You know, that, that we're, we're already all convinced that men and women are interchangeable somehow. You know, that was already part of the zeitgeist, you know. Um, and so if you've already mentally um, redefined marriage, they couldn't figure out why we were holding out. You know, why, why are we saying we can't let two men get married to each other? Why are we saying that if we've already said it's a sterile thing? Oh, um, and, that, and that it needn't be permanent, needn't be sexually exclusive. We've already gone that far. Why, you know, why, why not let two guys get married? And so that, and so rather than ignore that, which I felt like a lot of people were ignoring, I said, well, let's look at this. And yeah. what I came up with was, well, no, we really can't ignore it. You know, we really have to assert, again, the differences between men and women the needs of children for a permanent relationship with both of their biological parents, right? Mm. And for the primacy of the connection between sex and babies, that, that yeah. socially declaring that sex and babies are to be disconnected, you know, this is a big thing. You know, this was sold to us like it was no big deal. Right. It was a huge deal, you know? Um, and um, and we're, still, we're still trying to sort out all the ramifications of that, um, as we see with the whole Dobbs decision and the re and the reaction to that, and and right. so on and so forth. So that that's how I came up with it, Helen. I don't I don't know if that's what yeah. you expected. No, it's that's, not. But that's really interesting. It starts with that. It sort of started with the, the concept of marriage and and flowered out from there. Um, right. Right. Another thing I really appreciated about the book was the the way that you illustrated the victims. Um, mm. And actually, I'm going to just go, I'm just going to read a little section here so that people can get an idea of what I mean by this. Um, you say, consider the following people. Children of divorce, single mothers, not by choice, but by default. Uh, the young professionals who postpone marriage until their 30s so they can complete their education and establish themselves in their careers. Why don't they get married in their early 20s and work with their spouses to jointly pursue their educations and career goals? Their perfectly rational fear of divorce prevents them. Um, and the adult children of divorce as well. Uh, the new mother who would like to stay home with her baby but is afraid her husband might not stay married to her. Uh, uh, all, there are just countless, countless ways that, that, that this plays out, that no-fault divorce plays out and, and leaves just a, a wake of casualties, you know. Right. So right. we yeah. all know these people. And I mean, in, in so many ways, I feel like the whole world is, is Neverland and we're all lost boys and lost girls and, and, and lotus eaters, you know, timeless and addicted to distraction because of this deep pain that is just so pervasive. Um, but, you know, so often communication with these people feels feels impossible because so many people I feel deny their pain or mm -hmm. or minimize mm -hmm. it and and minimize minimize its cause and minimize the yes. tragedy of divorce you know so what yes. do you think is the best way to uh, reach people who despite their own misery their, despite their own apparent misery don't seem to want to admit that there's a problem so this too took a long time for me to figure out okay um because I can remember when I when I did the research for my first book, Love and Economics, I had all these statistics about um, about how kids do better when they have their mom and dad married to each other, and all the problems of single parents and children divorce and so on. And I remember just you know blasting people with, oh, there's, look at all these problems that happen, you know, with single children and single mothers. And sure enough, very right away, somebody raised their hand. Well, my mom was a single mom. I turned out okay. She's yeah. fine. You know, and, and I, I had stirred up all this defensiveness, right? And so I'm like, well, that didn't go as planned. You know, that, that wasn't what I was going for. Um, and but but over time, I started to realize that that part of what was going on with the, with the students, right? Because I I did a lot of college debating and stuff like that. 
what was going on with students was they were protective of their moms and they didn't like me saying something bad about their moms. And I thought, well, you know, that's actually a very wholesome thing that they feel. And I don't want to take them down for that. You know, I don't want them to feel badly. That That's a good thing, you know. Um, and so I started thinking about, well, would these people, if these people had had accurate information at the time they made their decisions, what would they have chosen? You know, and of course, most of them would have chosen something very different. You know, so I started framing it in those terms, you know, that, um, that, that you know, we were told. We were told that, that the kids would be fine after divorce. And we were told that it wouldn't make any difference. We were, to, we were told that your divorce wouldn't affect anybody but you, you know, and that it was, we were just going to make it easier for two people who were sensible and mature and decided to call it quits. And, you know, we're just going to make it easier for them. And, 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 you know, nobody really thought through what the long-term consequences of would be. Well, now the reaction I get, Helen, I have literally had people run out of the room crying, crying because it hurts so much to think about what that divorce of their parents meant to them. So um, I'm not saying that's the best thing, but, um, but, it, but, it's, but there's some willingness to engage then, you know. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to hurt people. I didn't mean to hurt people, you know. I don't mean to hurt people with this book. But, but they know I'm not blaming them. They know I'm not blaming their mom. And, and, and I, would, I would put it this way, the way I've been putting it more recently is, you know, if, 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 you, if you're in a neighborhood, in a nice neighborhood, and there's one house that's run down and the grass isn't cut and there are broken windows, you think, what's wrong with these people? But if you look around and the entire town is broken down and, and, and windows are broken and there's dirt in the street and there's wreckage everywhere, that's different. A hurricane came through. That's what that was. That was a hurricane. It's nobody's fault, you know. And I think we have been living through, and full disclosure, I lived through two hurricanes in 2020, okay? Here in Lake Charles, Louisiana, we had back-to-back hurricanes. Okay, everybody's a wreck. It's nobody's fault, you know? So if you think of the sexual revolution and its ideology as being a kind of cultural hurricane, it's, it, it, there's a sense in which it's no one's fault. Now, of course, you have to take personal responsibility for the choices you made and so on and so forth. But there's an element of it that is not your fault. And I, I think, I, and I think people seem to be responding pretty well to that. You know, it's like, it's like um, most people are both victims and perpetrators in some way. And yeah. I think people can identify with that. People can identify with it, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah, I agree with that. That's, a, that's, that's, that's an interesting answer. Um, I'd like to go sort of back to my first question for just a oh, moment um, that sure. the uh, the concept of the sexual state um, oh. and and yeah I, I was wondering well why why does the sexual as you as you sort of lay out in one of your chapters why does the sexual rev- revolution need the state and conversely why does the managerial class or how does it benefit from uh, these ideologies so let's just start with the sexual revolution, the ideologies, okay? So mm. I break down the sexual revolution into three ideologies. One is the idea that a good and decent society should do everything possible to separate sex from babies, okay? And I call that the contraceptive ideology. And when I say this, I think people will recognize that this is true, that this is what we're trying to do, right? But nobody ever blurts that out like that, right? Nobody ever comes out and says, hey, this is what we want to do. Um, but in fact, that's, you know, that, that everything points to that, that that's the goal. So I call that the contraceptive ideology, separating sex and babies. <clears throat> and then the second point is that um, a good and decent society should do everything possible to separate both sex and babies from marriage. So you don't need to be married in order to have sex. You don't need to be married in order to have a baby. Okay. And I call that the divorce ideology. Because beyond the, what's behind that is the idea that children don't actually need their parents, right? That if a child does is conceived, that there's no particular reason for the adults to be in a stable relationship with each other. And that opens the door to all kinds of things, not just divorce, but also single parenthood by choice and, um, and third-party reproduction, you know, which is a, another whole topic. So that's the divorce ideology. And then the, the third point of the sexual revolution is that men and women 
are there's really no difference between men and women. The, the differences in the sex of the body uh, are either insignificant and can be and can be reconstructed socially, um, or now more recently, the differences of the sex of the body are so insignificant that we can overwrite them with enough technology so that if for whatever reason you decide you want to be be and live as a person of the sex other than the sex you were born, you can do that somehow, you know, that that's possible. Um, and, and I call that the gender ideology. So the reason the sexual revolution needs the state is that all three of those things are impossible. They're all irrational. They cannot be done. And so therefore you have to prop it up all the time. You know, you have to continually convince people that sex is a sterile activity. You have to continually convince people of all the subsidiary things that flow from that, which is that abortion is completely harmless, right? And, uh, and contraception is completely harmless. And contraception really works all the time. And if it doesn't work, it's because you didn't use it correctly. You know, all, the, all these kind of, um, you know, subsidiary things that have to be claimed in order to prop up the initial thing that, that, that isn't true, you know. And so this, for instance, this thing I just mentioned, we just got, the Ruth Institute, we just got a couple of our videos taken down off of YouTube yeah. because of... We talked about the link between abortion and breast cancer, and wow. big tech doesn't like that. I think they have little robots that go around, you know, and 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 look for keywords or something, you know, and they yeah. found abortion and breast cancer in the same sentence, and so they took down these three videos. Well, these videos were not religious; they were science, right? So, if there wow. is a scientific connection between abortion and breast cancer, we don't want anybody to ever know that. You know, so that that's your clue that you, you're dealing with an ideology that's really mm -hmm. irrational. And so therefore, you need the state to keep the whole thing cooking. Right. And so you need power and you need propaganda. Mm. And, and what I didn't know, I wrote this book in 2018. Right. So I had never heard the term deep state when I wrote this book. Wow. You know, that wasn't that wasn't on my radar at all at that, that time. That surprises um, me so much because it's so current. I mean, in the I way know. that in the way that you describe the elites and everything, it's like I like, know. This I has know. sort of come to light since then. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And so then I discovered people talking about the administrative state, which I was mm. hinting at a little bit in here yeah. when I talk about the managerial class and stuff. But but I had but the managerial class and the, 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 the administrative state and the deep state, those are a little bit different, but they're clearly related to the subject yeah. of the sexual state, right? And so I, I think for your political science buddies, you know, because you, you hang out with the Strauss guys, the Strauss Yeah, guys, the Straussians. So I'm, I'm, I'm deep you know. in, in the Claremont cabal. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right, right. Well, I, and I, and when you when you reached out to me, that's why I said yes right away because I have a lot of respect for those guys. Oh um, yeah, I mean but, they, their their work on the administrative state has really been um, the work on the administrative state. That's right, that's right, and it's and it's you know it's an important aspect of the whole thing. And just for people who aren't familiar with that, what what I take them to mean by the administrative state is that the the federal government creates agencies to achieve some sort of vague policy goal. And then the agency is empowered to do everything it wants to do. And they're not accountable to anybody. They've got all three branches of government wrapped up in that agency and they're not accountable. And then if you let that run for a generation or two, then it becomes corrupt. And then it's mm -hmm. the deep state. Mm -hmm. That's the way I put it together. Then it's, you know, then it, now it's, it's unaccountable and Right. nasty and all the rest of it. But I was thinking of the sexual state strictly in the terms that I mentioned, that, that it it requires, an irrational ideology requires a lot of force. Or, or to put it another way, if you're going to do the impossible, you need a lot of power. <laughs> you know, and, and to convince people of something that isn't true, you need a lot of propaganda. Yeah. And, and I find that when people see that, they feel empowered because they realize, oh, I'm not crazy. I am being pummeled with propaganda all day long. Well, yeah, yeah you are. You yeah. Are. And there's there's a party functionary just lurking around the corner ready to manage your problems for you. I You mentioned in the book um, the school guidance counselor who's able to um, facilitate an abortion for a 14-year-old girl with a 25-year-old I'm going to say the word boyfriend, and what I really mean is rapist. Um, right. right. That, so that that's a that's an example 
uh, among many right. that that you highlight in the book of the state operating on this level. Um, right. And right. yeah, it's it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. That is that that really is like one of my favorite parts of the book is this um uh, the, the way that you detail the sexual state and and it's actually sort of juxtaposed i don't know if you i'm sure it was intentional it has to be right but the juxtaposition of the sexual state against um you know the backdrop of the catholic church it almost you've almost framed it as as an anti-church almost you know because the 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 church has has the right idea on all of these uh, contraception, divorce, and gender. Yeah. The, uh, has the right idea, and it's been, you know, <laughs> to to it's it's absorbed a lot of criticism and and chagrin because it's had the right idea and it hasn't let up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's an institution that that sort of stands by that. And so what, how you've described this like other institution that has to use that 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 just stands for the exact opposite it's interesting it's like these two sort of sh- figures right um and you know yeah, so this... if you put it if we could just pause on that point right there sure. okay if, if you believe that sex makes babies and you build your social structures around the idea that if, if you have if men and women are having sex periodically you're going to have babies okay and you build your structures on that that belief system will be reinforced by events because babies will appear, right? And if, on the other hand, you're trying to build a whole social system around the idea that sex and babies are completely disconnected, you're going to get a lot of counter evidence, right? Because the baby suits, you know, periodically, they're going to make it through, you know, and you're not ready for them. You have to explain them away. You have to have special circumstances. You know, it's like... uh, You have to kill them. Well, you know, why not? (laughs) Right. right. Um, so, so, yeah, yeah. It, it, the and and I. It, the other unfortunate thing about the timing of this thing is that as soon as it was published, like, it's right around the time it was published, the whole McCarrick scandal broke. Okay. Mm. So here I am walking around with the book title, "Why the Church Was Right All Along," and <sighs> Theodore McCarrick was toddling up. I'm like, oh great, oh, great. <laughs> But but the good thing of it is, is that it makes it very clear that it's not the people in the church, it's the doctrine. Right, and exactly. I have had to say this like a million times in the last five years, you know, listen, Catholics, we have a lot of corruption in our hierarchy. We have a lot oh, of yeah. corruption in our institutions. That's a fact. But the doctrine is sound. And that's what you got to hang on to. And, and we're the last guys standing. So, of course, they want to take us down. You know, uh, I mean, if the Catholic Church goes down listen, you Lutherans are going to smash you guys like bugs. Okay. I mean, it's just, there's nobody else who can possibly resist. And, and a lot of our institutions have already completely collapsed on it. So, you know, here we are last guy holding the flag. Yeah. But it's the the one last not rainbow flag. (laughs) Right. But, but, but it's a, it's a flag. I mean, the flag I feel I'm holding is the flag for children to have their mother and father. So that mm. poor children and rich children and black children and white children, they can have their mom and their dad. And right now, having your mom and dad is a privilege of the college-educated social class. That's yeah. a, that is a fact. And that is what these, that's where this whole thing has led. And, you know, not very many people really want to face up to the full impact of that. Yeah. Yeah, it it breaks my heart when I think about that because it's so clear to me, having even very young children, how much they need both of us. Yes. They they need both of us. They need their dad. They need me. Yeah. And yeah. They need us there with them. They they need mm-hmm. to be raised by us. Um you know, we spend I don't, I don't try not to spend you know, too much time away from them. I mean, I'm, I'm with them all the time, but like, if I have to like go on a trip or whatever, I like really limit it because they get, um, I can just see, I can see my eldest, especially the toddler become dysregulated if I'm, if I'm not there, you know, like I'm her, I'm the way that she manages life really. And how she's learning to regulate her emotions and, um, This is just like basic psychological stuff. And when I reflect on how the absence of 
the absence of fathers, just the general period point blank absence of fathers, and then the the absence of mothers in the form of mothers prioritizing their career. When I reflect on the way that 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 those children must feel, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, I feel it too. And I, I we were in a situation where it would have been cruel to continue down this path. You know, I mean, because I, I was on that path and, and, and we, this is a joke in our family and we say it all the time, you know, that, that if all I, if I just had Annie, um, I would have gotten away with it, you know, because she was an easy child, right? Yeah. But because yeah. of Nick, um, I had to stay home. And so Annie got to have her mom at home because of Nick. And so they clown around about it, you know, and, you know, there's, you know, they're in their thirties now. It's not as desperate as it once was, but, you know, we could have lost him. Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 and some people do lose their kids, you know, I mean, it's so, um, and, and we had a lot of people, you know, telling us, oh, it'll be okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, when I left George Mason, the, the senior person in the economics department of George Mason was James Buchanan, who's a Nobel Whoa. laureate. He was in the office right next to mine. Right. And yeah, you know who he is? You know who I'm oh, talking yeah. about? James Buchanan. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in the office right next to mine. And he was angry when I quit. He was angry at me because he thought I was wasting my life to take care of these kids. Wow. Yeah. How yeah. did you respond? Oh, I had to ignore him. I yeah. mean, I just, I just, I just could not allow it to matter. You yeah. Know, that, yeah. That what totally. he, what he felt. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it, it was sad, but it made it very clear that I was doing the right thing, you know, because, you know, he, if that's their attitude, they're never going to really accommodate you. You know, they're never going to really understand why you need to take time off or whatever it is. You know, it's like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I don't have yeah. to think about that anymore. You know, right, made right. it in some, in some ways and made it easy. But, but yeah. anyway, since we're, since we're talking about that, I'll just mention my first book was called Love and Economics. Oh yeah, um, and, and yeah, and and the original subtitle of that book, which I did not invent the subtitle, the original subtitle was "Why the Laissez-Faire Family Doesn't Work," which wow. was a problem in a number of ways because it, it inflamed my economist friends, which is okay. I was okay with inflaming them, but yeah. the typical <laughs> talk show radio talk show host had no idea what I was talking about, and, right? And they couldn't even pronounce the title, so it's like. This is probably not a marketing win here, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but, I, but I was trying to say to my libertarian friends, listen, you guys, you want a free society. A free society doesn't come along out of nowhere. Where do you think adults come from, you guys? Where? Yeah. If you leave the child alone, the child will never be a person who can be turned loose with freedom. Because, you know, that's what we were looking at. We were looking at, at, at kids with poor attachments to their parents. I, I, I opened the book talking about attachment disorder. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, I am, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if you got a kid with attachment disorder, that's ca catastrophic, you know, I mean, that's potentially catastrophic thing right. because they have no confidence. And so that's what we were afraid of. <laughs> that's why I'm staying home. I'm going to do everything I can so that at the end of the day, no matter what happens, I'll know I did my part. Whereas yeah. if I stayed at work, I would never know that, you know, so anyway, he's fine. He turned out fine. But the yeah. point is, I was trying to convey to the economists, look, you guys, you can't manage a society with a whole lot of attachment disordered people. You cannot manage it. You have got to have people who have a functioning conscience so that they're controlling themselves when they walk into the store and don't shoplift, so that they're controlling themselves when they refrain from stuffing the ballot box. Right. Or, you know, whatever other crime they think they can get away with. And the only way people are attached is they've got to have a maternal figure that they attach to in infancy. That's the most reliable way to get it done. And wow. if it doesn't happen there, it's really hard to go back in and paste it in. It's, yeah. It can be done. But right. by far, hi, Helen, what you're doing is the most reliable way of producing a functional adult. You know, that's, that's the way it works. And nobody wants to hear that, you know, because we're all committed to our careers and our freedom and, you know, this, this whole narrative that, that in the end, 
hurts the kids, but it also hurts us because it yeah. leaves us empty and lonely, you know, and that, that's what you wrote about in your little column that you were talking about post COVID, the, the, the young women figuring out yeah. I, I'm home alone in this apartment. I have no one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the libertarians had their moment, but it's very much over. They take for granted way too much. Yeah. And they, I think they, exactly. they've taken for granted, um, yeah, like you've said, like the, the care, care work, emotional labor, as some, some people like to call it now, but it's, it's, it's real, it's immeasurable. Um, right. Um, but, and, and women usually do it. Uh, it's, it's hard, to, it's hard to, you know, put pen to paper and measure exactly how, how that makes for a good GDP. But the founders understood this, like took completely understood it, uh, Tocqueville wrote about this in Democracy in America, and that he right. wrote about the American woman because of her centrality and her her elevated status within the domestic realm. He talked about that actually in economic terms as the engine of prosperity, like the mm -hmm. domestic wife and mother was the engine of American prosperity. That is radical, you know, <laughs> but right. it's, and, and it, it feels like so-called conservatives who for a long time have really just been liberal economists, uh, yeah, sort of yeah, that's right. lost that idea, you know? Yes. Well, you know, I think it's telling that the guy who figured it out and who was able to articulate it was a Catholic aristocrat. Yeah. He was right? not, <laughs> right? Right. He was not a Unitarian deist or something or, yeah. a, or, um, or a, Yeoman farmer or something like that, but I, I mean, and the idea was present, but it was tacit. Yeah, you know, they they couldn't articulate it, and and that's what was so yeah. difficult in the in the debate over Prop Eight. You know, and and we were being asked, we are now all of us were being asked to articulate something that we've been taking for granted for millennia, right? And I feel like we're just kind of, we're kind of just getting started. Yeah, I mean, crazy as that sounds, we're just getting started giving a full explanation, a full analysis of right. what it is that goes on in the home that's so central and yes. why we can't substitute out for it, you know? Totally. These yeah. things we're trying. It feels like reinventing the wheel in a lot of ways. Like how oh, do gosh, you yes. how do you explain in a total in a world where <clears throat> everything is fluid? I you know every concept you can put a word to is completely fluid. Like how do you nail something down? It's like, it's like pinning jello to the wall or something like it's it. Um, but this is the work that, that, you know, I see that you're doing with the Ruth Institute. And I, I think that's, that it's good work. Um, you, and you talked about this actually on your podcast on, um, Pints with Aquinas with Matt Frad, um, oh. which is, which is, is a great podcast. Is that how you discovered me? I actually think I like I'm, it might've been through tan books that I discovered you. And then I heard the podcast and I was like, you know, thinking, Oh, who should I have on? And Oh yeah, this is, I got to make this connection. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so it was a couple of different That's ways. Right. It was but, someone at Tan. It yes. was someone at Tan who introduced us. That's what it was. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, but so, uh, but, but I do encourage everyone listening to go listen to that Pines with Aquinas podcast, because that's a really good one. Um, yeah. And he's got some really cool, good, great clips of you talking about transgenderism yeah. as well, which is that, that, that third final uh, tenet of the sexual revolution, yes. the sexual state that you explain in the book. Yes. Um, but so another thing that you mentioned on the podcast, which I think, which I want to touch on because it is spicy <laughs> is uh, he asks you whether whether it was a mistake to encourage careerism in ambitious, uh, ambitious and talented young women. And you did you did answer yes. So I, I kind of want to explore this topic because, like I said, it's um, this is a sticky one, even for people who call themselves conservative now. Uh, I think it's right. a sticky topic for because there are so many very talented women, brilliant women, mm -hmm. capable women, you know. Right. So and, and it's so easy as well to straw man the traditionalist perspective yes. on women's work um, to straw man to straw man the position as like arbitrarily and cruelly limiting of like real talent, you know. So 
I wanna I wanna like define our terms here. What do we mean by the workplace? What do we mean by participation in the workplace? Um, and yeah, what you know, what are your thoughts on this? When I answered Matt, if you if you look at that podcast, I I got kind of a wistful look on my face because I remember thinking, you know, this narrative we have that we are being encouraged so deeply encouraged to the almost to the point of pressured. Mm-hmm. Um, almost to the point of it's being compulsive, or compulsory, you know, um, for women to to get as much education as possible and 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 have a, a high paying job and so on. That has caused so much unhappiness in women, and we are not willing to fully face how much unhappiness that has caused. Um, it's not just that people that we're giving people this menu of choices and everybody can pick what they want. That's not an accurate depiction of what's been going on. Okay. So first of all, we got to put that on the table. Yeah. Um, Another thing we got to put on the table is that we live a long time now, or at least we have been living a long time with our post truth culture. We're losing science. We're losing technology. Uh, Life expectancy probably is going to go down. You know, um, your life expectancy of your generation may not be as, as long as ours, but (laughs) Um, given that most of us live well past our childbearing age, right? Um, it's possible for women to raise children during their peak childbearing years. And when the kids don't need them as badly uh, to go and do something outside the home, that's possible. That's a possible path. Um, and that is an honorable path. Um, it's the path that women as diverse as Phyllis Schlafly and Ruth Bader Ginsburg both pursued. Right. Um, but both of them had husbands who backed them up. Ruth mm-hmm. Bader Ginsburg was married to the same man her whole life, you know, and 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 he supported her and he adored her from the sounds of it, you know, um, and Phyllis Schlafly. She raised six children and then she got a law degree and then she became, um, you know, the great conservative activist that she was, you know. So that's a path which is possible and it's never been adequately promoted as part of feminism. Feminism meant being the same as men all the way through the life cycle, you know, and and it's a very interesting question why that's the thing that got to be called feminism and nothing else has been allowed to be called feminism, you know. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think that bears um, some thought and discussion. We can go there if you want to. But but I do think that the pressure that has been put on women, both psychologically, culturally, and economically, the pressure that we're all under to to get our career, you know, to get our education, our careers right at the beginning of our lives, it doesn't work. It, yeah. it really, truly doesn't work. That's a career path that was designed for men. Yep. And it was not designed for us. And we should say that as clearly as we possibly can. That is a point, by the way, Helen, that I figured out very early in my life as an anti-feminist. Really? <laughs> um, because, well, yeah, because my doctorate's in economics and uh, my specialty was labor economics. You know, and it's like you can easily see, you know, that never married women are not discriminated against. Even in the 70s, you could see that, that never married women made the same amount of money as never married men. But marriage propels men into higher income and women into lower income because of the division of labor in the household. And so in order to make men and women equal, you got to attack the division of labor. You got to say that that's all wrong. That's all bad. Got to get rid of the kids. Husband's got to be forced to do his share of housework. Badger, 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 argue, argue, argue. Let's get divorced. You know, all that stuff gets thrown into the mix. And yeah. yeah, and that was completely unnecessary, completely unnecessary, as far as I'm concerned, to, to get the good things that feminism claims for itself. You didn't need all that. Yeah, We didn't need that. Yeah, yeah there's this interesting um, tendency to demean uh, household labor. Yeah. And we've sort of already yeah. touched on this, but, um, you know, just from the spiritual perspective, and this might... I mean, okay, yes, there, there are, there are higher and lower forms of, of labor, right? And, and if you're like uh, operating as a lawyer on the highest levels, you're doing things that are really intellectually engaging. Yeah, that's different than folding laundry. Okay, that's maybe it's a higher, um, higher use of, of your cognitive faculties, but 
there's something spiritually, in my opinion, there's something spiritually beneficial. There's something spiritually important about folding laundry well. Like, folding laundry with your heart in the right place and, um, you know, humbling yourself to do the stuff that's not fun because it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that, that you should resign yourself completely to a lifetime of, uh, slave labor or whatever it is. <laughs> um, because, because it's, it's, it's immoral to be a, a female lawyer. That is not what I'm saying at all. But I'm just saying that like, there's this, I think, attitude for, for many young mothers now that, that, of of real resentment for having to do this kind of labor right now when you could be doing the corner offer stuff. Um, and so I think like emptying yourself of that, that resentment and, and accepting with humility that this is important in ways that aren't, aren't, aren't exactly measurable in terms of productive value. At least that, that for me, it makes sense in my own life. Um, and I, I wish that there were a way to sort of articulate this in a way that makes well, sense to people. <laughs> Helen, I'm really glad you brought this up. I'll tell you, because when I started the Ruth Institute in 2008, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. That's what I thought I was going to do. And then Prop 8 happened and mm-hmm. I got, you know, swept away into that. But, but seriously, you know, my first book, Love and Economics was about motherhood and why motherhood is irreplaceable. And so what I would say to you and to anyone, you know, when you're folding your laundry, probably, maybe, your baby, your toddler is there in the room with you. Or maybe your baby's in the rocker room in the room. And your baby's over there and she makes a little noise. And she goes, and, and you hear that and you go, and you're talking to the baby, right? And yeah. so you're... You're establishing communication and bonding and and your presence, the fact that you are there for that child, you know. Yeah. Um, she's looking at you. You're looking at her. Um, your toddler is going to learn. You're going to have your toddler folding a napkin because it's a little square and they can figure out how to do that. You know, you fold daddy's handkerchief, you know, and, they're, and you're teaching them those little chores that, that they can do and you're affirming them and their ability to accomplish something small like that. And then they can do something bigger. And, you know, and this is why big families function because bigger kids know how to do stuff yeah. um, and take care of the littler ones and, you know, and, and all that, all that sort of thing. And so to say that what goes on in the home is unimportant is to say that love is unimportant. Mm. It is to say that relationship is unimportant. Okay. And I think we as women need to say that, right. That, Feminism really, in a way, was masculinism. We were, we were being affirmed for being more masculine, right? And, and the things that women do aren't getting done in the way that they need to be done. You know, that, that you, Helen, are irreplaceable to your two little monkeys. You know, nobody else can come in there and do the same thing and have it mean the same thing, you know? And, and that speaks to the specialness of each individual soul, each individual person. So, yeah. you know, you could be, if you're working in the corner office doing wills and trusts or whatever, somebody else could do that. Nobody yeah. else can be mom to those two little guys, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's, um, that's about love. You know, that's about love. And so I, I, I feel like, do you know Scott Yenner? Do you know who Scott I do is? know Scott, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Scott's my guy, you know. I mean, yeah. and, and he's the one who put this into words and to say yeah. that the I have his book world, back there. <laughs> yeah, the recovery yeah, of family life. I'm not sure if you can even yeah, see it yeah, from yeah, there, yeah. but there yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've interviewed him several times on my podcast, and I just gave him Scholar of the Year Award for the Ruth Institute this past year. But he's the one who, who put it into words for me that the modern world has no room for love. Everybody's autonomous, individual, self-directing, self-actualizing, yeah. making contracts in the spot market, you know, as we would say in economics, not even making long-term contracts, just these little spot, spot market contracts. Right. There's no room for love. Well, that's not a really, truly, authentically human world, a world right. without love. Right. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, um... That's that's so true. 
it's a war on intimacy. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um, actually, yeah, and I don't, I don't want to give too much away about the book because I want people to actually read it themselves. But um, you do conclude by bringing up something that you call the civilization of love. So yeah. um, what is that and how do we achieve it? Well, that phrase, civilization of love, comes from St. John Paul II. That was a phrase that he used, and it was in contrast with the culture of death, you know, the civilization built on love. And and how do we achieve it? Well, we have a 15-point manifesto for the family in the last chapter of the book, you know, so <laughs> from a policy perspective, we have it all laid out, I think, you know. But, but, but really, um, the idea of the civilization of love is, a, is, is that instead of your foundational concept being the autonomous adult individual you start with the concept that every person is meant for love and and i think all christians would agree with this i think jews would agree with this right that the human person is meant for love we were created by god in love his love right and we were created for love and this is where we find our greatest meaning and our greatest satisfaction and our ultimate happiness is being in relation and union and communion with others and so a civilization built on that fact is going to look very different from the civilization that we have now. And yeah, that's what I want to put out there, you know, that, that we can't be having public policies that undermine the family, that substitute sex and lust for love. You know, we can't do that. We got to stop doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, the, the final part of, of all of my interviews on this podcast um, is in many ways my favorite part. I, I, I like to ask people what they would, um, what, the, what kind of advice they would give a young woman today who f finds themselves disenchanted by all of the things that we've been talking about, the sex culture, the work culture, the general lack of love and friendship in, in the culture at large. Um, what, what advice would you give that person for living virtually in these times? Living virtually? Is that what you said? Virtuously. Sorry. Virtuously. I was going to yeah. say. <laughs> Don't, oh, let's not live virtually. It. Please avoid the metaverse. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Yes. yes. Advice. First piece of advice. Avoid the meta universe. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I, one thing I would say is to take seriously your uh, your relational life. Give as much attention and seriousness to that as you do to your career and education. You know, to the thing that I want to be married one day. Well, then you need to put some attention on meeting people and, um, and and thinking about what you're what kind of person you're looking for and making yourself the kind of person that would be that that's able to be in a relationship you know um, that a lot of us have a hard time um, um, what's what's the right word I, I think a lot of women no longer know how to receive um, uh, yes. that we feel like we're somehow um, overly dependent or clingy or something if we let people take care of us. Well, yeah. it's perfectly okay to, for, for men and women alike to let somebody yeah. in, you know, let somebody mentally, emotionally into your, into your space by saying, I need you. I appreciate you. Thank you for doing that for me. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so th those are some elements, you know, for, for the unmarried. If you are married, I would say, uh, what I would say to someone your age, um, is you need to be sure that you prioritize your marriage. It's very easy, very common for new moms to put all their energy into the kids and dad feels ignored. Um, and you have to be very intentional and conscious about not letting that happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, to let him know that he's important to you, that you save time and energy for him, that you tell him, look, I'm exhausted. Is there something we can do so that I can have the time to relax so that when you come home, I can be, really be there for you. And different couples will work out different ways to solve that, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I I think you need to convey to your husband that you need him and that you care for him and that you appreciate him. And, and above all, respect him. Mm -hmm. Men need to be respected. And don't boss him around. 
Yeah. I try. I try to boss my husband around. My husband kind of guy, you, that's going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. 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 Let, let him advice. take care of you. You yeah yeah i can appreciate that it's definitely something to meditate on and put put to action actually uh, one one more question about about action um because this this really is the i think there's like a a real spirit of fear that is everywhere just there are a lot of people out there who are just normal people whose only operating principle in public life is leave me alone. Uh, but I I personally believe that the time for that sort of fear-based avoidance is up. Where it's, it's, it's time to do something. It's time to stand up. And if you're not doing it this, at, at this point, when things are getting this crazy, you might, you might wonder... Uh, I I don't know. I might wonder what that says about you and, and what you would do when, when things get harder. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what, how would you encourage people to find it in themselves to be active in this fight? And, um, and, and, you know, what practically speaking might they do? Well, um, it depends on your state in life and your time in yeah. life. Okay, so the the kinds of things that you and your husband are positioned to do are very different from the kinds of things that perhaps your parents could do. Okay, mm-hmm. and so I I always tell people, you know, if you have small children, that's your first priority. Yeah. Um, and th- that's just that that just is. You know, you have to take care of them. Um, that doesn't preclude you doing other things, and there are plenty of things that you can do, you know, in, in large ways and small ways to to be involved. Um, but I, but I think I think what you're getting at now. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think what you're getting at is people just being uh, having the attitude of, well, I'm going to protect myself and my family, and uh, keep my head down, and um, yeah, and keep, at least I'll exactly. I'll get through. I'll get through somehow. Is that the exactly kind of exactly like I'll just yeah. preserve my paycheck and and everything is going to be fine. Yeah, and yeah. and you know yeah, uh, it's okay. Like my kids can be exposed to the my kids can keep going to public school. And, and I'll just, I'll just, I won't, I won't go to the PTA meetings or the school board meetings and say things. I'll just sort of quietly correct them at home and expect that everything will be yeah. okay. Yeah. That's what I'm talking that, about. Yeah. That's a non-starter. Okay. Right. That's a complete non-starter. You cannot hide from these people. They're coming yeah. for you. Okay. Even if you're homeschooling your kids, they're trying to shut that down. Okay. So right. you, in spite of what I just said, yes, you have to make your own children your first priority. But do not think that because you've got a safe little nest that your little nest is safe. It is not. Okay, they're coming for you. They're coming through for you through the internet. They're on your kids' phones. They're you know they're in the school. It's everywhere, right? The corruption, the kind of the, the kind of attempt to redefine uh, the human person and human sexuality and all that stuff. Your kids are going to be affected. So uh, that would be the first thing I would say is do not deceive yourself. If you do not actively resist the sexual revolution, you will be bowled over by it. Mm-hmm. Sooner or later, you'll 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 give up. <clears throat> you'll just say, "Oh well, let them have it." You know, "Oh well, what's you know?" <clears throat> oh well, why fight it? You know, it it won't be that bad. Well, that's why we are where we are today. Is too many people saying, "Oh well," you know, just just let them, just give them what they want, and they'll leave us alone. People, yeah. they're not right. going to leave you alone. They are not going to leave you alone. All right. right. So if you don't consciously resist, you will be bowled over. You'll be like one of those uh, churches that changes their views on gay marriage or something. You know, I mean, you see these things happening all the time. People that at one time were, you know, taking stands on various issues. They collapse one by one on issue by issue. They just sort of fold. And that'll be you. That'll that'll be you. If you, unless you conscientiously resist. So now having said that, the fight is big enough and diverse enough that everybody can find something that they can do, right? So there are things you can do where you're just, um, you know, maybe responding to emails from a pro-family group that says, please write to your congressman this week. Please write to your state legislator on this. Well, you know, if you've got something like that set up to where you're getting their emails, 
you can you can cut and paste their emails and you can respond and you can do that. And you need to find something like that, you know, wherever your state and line is, find something that, that you can do. A- another whole class of things that you can do is to be supportive of people who are getting beat up. So when I go through here and talk about all the victims of the sexual revolution, the children of divorce, the abandoned spouses, you know, all these people and uh, people who have been abused by, um, who've been sexually abused, clergy sexual abuse, this is a big issue that Ruth puts a lot of attention on. Um, The fact that nobody will talk to them is a Mm. big problem, right? And some of you have the capacity to be really, really effective in that area, you know, to to reach out to people who are hurting, to tell them it's not all your fault, to tell them that you'll be there with them or, or that you'll include, just to, that you'll include them, you know, that you won't leave them all alone, you know, that you'll invite them to things and stuff like that. That's that's a huge ministry, a very important ministry. When you think about all the broken souls, broken oh, hearts yeah. that are out there, you know, and, and nobody's really doing anything for them. Totally. You know, yeah. there's plenty of opportunity there, you know. A lot of really positive work. It doesn't have to be political activism. In fact, that's probably the worst thing. (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah. Everything you've said is, um, I love that. It's a special calling. Politics is a special calling. It's like law enforcement is a special calling. Well, you know, I can't go. I can't go arrest sex predators. Okay, I can't do that. Yeah, um, but every, you know, I mean, I just can't, and and I can't even investigate them and say, "Oh, look at this guy. We should do something about this guy." I mean, some people have that talent. Yeah. I don't, right? But I can talk to people. I can be nice totally. to people. I can refrain from saying something stupid, right? You know, which you know, which there's a lot of that. You know, get, get, why didn't you run away? Why didn't you stop him? You know, people. Mm, you know, there's just a lot that goes a lot that goes into those experiences that people don't really understand, and yeah. and it would be really helpful for people to say, you know, just tell me about it, just just let just let them talk, yeah, just you know, just be there, you know, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of scope for people to do something, yeah. And come on over to the Ruth Institute. We'll give you something to do. Yeah. Well, hey, why don't you, um, uh, how, how can people do that? How can people get involved with the Ruth Institute? Um, yeah, just come on over to ruthinstitute.org and, um, and sign up for our newsletter. That's the most reliable thing, the, the weekly newsletter, because they can't cancel that. You know, mm-hmm. they can't stop you from sending emails to people. So that, that, yeah. that's the first thing. Um, we have a YouTube channel, which you should go to and then go to Rumble and sign up on the alternative platforms just because the alternative pra- platforms are going to be more, uh, you know, hopefully more reliable than some of the right. others. It's hard to get people to go to Rumble, but you should go to Rumble and look yeah. for us there. Um, and we have a very active Facebook uh, page. Um, and you should just come on over and, and get involved with what we're doing. Absolutely. I, su- I endorse this 100%. <laughs> And um, Dr. Morse, I I just so appreciate it. It was such an honor to speak to you today, and I really I loved all all of your insights. And um, it's it's just been a real pleasure. So thank you for being here. Well, I'm really glad to do it, Helen. And I hope that um, some of the Claire monsters pay attention to what we're talking about here, because yeah. I think I think a lot of it will resonate with them, but they're just not used to thinking about it. Totally, totally. I'll I'll spread the word. <laughs> Ah, thank you thank you all right we'll talk soon